Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. All right, on the uh, podcast this week, we've got um, an unusual, uh, not-in-the-studio pair of guests. This is actually from the 10% Happier cross-country road trip meditation Apalooza thing that we did back in January where we got a very silly orange bus and traveled across the country talking to people about meditation. Uh, the culminating event was held at the Wanderlust uh, Studios in uh, Los Angeles, and uh, we had a pair of amazing guests who came up on stage with me and my partner in crime, uh, Jeffrey uh, Warren. Uh, Jeff Warren is this amazing meditation teacher from Toronto who's riding shotgun on the uh, meditation tour, and he and I are turning this into a, a book that's going to come out at New Year's uh, called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, which tackles all the the reasons why people aren't meditating and helps you get over the hump to, so you can actually do the thing and also in the process teaches you how to meditate. Anyway, the guests at this event at Wanderlust were uh, Bill Duane, who is the superintendent of well-being at Google. Basically, he's the guy who teaches meditation to folks at Google, um, among other things, and he's a great guy. Uh, and Moby, who's a uh, somebody you may have heard of, is a, a DJ and uh, a musician and makes hit records and uh, is politically active and does all sorts of stuff. And he's just a guy that I've known for a while. Um, and is also, uh, I think he refers to it as a secret meditation teacher. So he's done a bunch of meditation. He's not teaching folks. Uh, so we brought them up one by one. You'll get to hear both of them. Uh, and, and the sound will be a little different because this is not done in the studio. This is done uh, in a big room at Wanderlust in L.A. Here we go. Moby, Bill Duane, Jeff Warren, Dan Harris. Take it away. Bill Duane, who's coming up to the stage right now, is, as I mentioned before, the superintendent of well-being, whatever that means, at Google. So Google, everybody knows, obviously. And uh, so is it fair to say, Bill, that your job is to try to get people to meditate at Google, or part of your job is that? Yeah, part of it. So um, uh, my job is I look after the programs that deal with individual resilience and also organizational wisdom. Um, And part of that is meditation, although interestingly, part of that is not meditation. One of the things that I think it's crucial is to, if you're representing uh, mindfulness or meditation in an organization, is not to force it on people, right? To make it available, to open up the door. But for the people that want to, we really try and create structures and organizations that help have their, um, their actions match their intentions. Because this, this stuff is radically counterintuitive, right? You want to get more done? Go sit silently in the corner. Um, if, if, if your heart is suffering, uh, turn towards it. Right? It's radically counterintuitive. So there's all these things about what, what non-coercive structures can be put in place. So I, I like what you said about don't force it on people. I, I like to talk about this uh, uh, cartoon that ran in The New Yorker a couple years ago. It had two women having lunch, and one says to the other, I've been gluten-free for a week, and I'm already annoying. <laughs> and, and I think it's important not to uh, lecture people about this, whether you're an employee-er, uh, with due, all due respect to you and your wise book-buying choices, um, or a friend. Um, and, for example, my wife doesn't meditate. She's one of the people we interviewed on our tour. Um, and, uh, and I know if I was to lecture her about it, I would, it, would, it would lead to divorce. Um, so I think, I think that's really wise that you do that. But what... what You've done some research on uh, why people don't, you, you have an expression, we know the medicine works, we just can't achieve compliance. So have you, you've been listening to us talk about the research we've done. What have you gathered at Google? Well, it, it really mirrors, it's, it's the same thing. These four things come up over and over. Uh, and one is, I think, just to acknowledge that this, this, this type of work is radically counterintuitive. And when I, what I figured out, I've actually figured out by being wrong. Right? So my own personal experience is uh, uh, most of my practice has been longer form retreats. Uh, I did a retreat a little bit after my dad died that was uh, uh, phenomenal in terms of the, the opening. And so therefore I built programs. You mentioned that I said uh, if I could have one metric it would be uh, time spent but on cushion. Because it seems like there's a relationship the more you practice the more benefit you get. And so I set out programs that were really emphasizing longer form practice. Uh, and uh, uh, my colleagues really said, you know, we think we're missing something because 
there needs to be that on-ramp. It seems like once you get to a certain point where you're sitting for 10, 30, 40 minutes that you're going, but there's this large group of people who have an intention to practice, but it's just sort of getting over that hump. So somewhat paradoxically, knowing that the more you practice, the more benefit you get, most of our programs have been moving into shorter and shorter increments, um, or making them overlap with our days more and more. So you think one minute counts? I do, and I used to argue with my friend Meng about this all the time. I'm like, no, no, no. Um, and I think part of it is that the re there's not much research on very, very short, what you called, uh, and our shared teacher, Shinzen, called micro-hits. Um, but we do find that if people can get, it's almost like building an on-ramp into the regular practice. Uh, and I think it's crucial that if we don't get to that point, uh, you know, Google is full of high achievers. And if we, if we set our minds to do something and then we don't do it, we have a tendency to meet that with a fair amount of self-criticism. Uh, and that's really difficult. Imagine if someone gave you a device and they said, if you use this device, you will be happier and more effective and more compassionate. And then the first thing you, you do is you start hitting yourself over the head with the device. Right? You're just like, oh, I'm doing this wrong. I'm terrible at this. Wow, I really tried to do something and I'm not doing it at all. And then you say this device is broken, right? But of course, the key is to actually stop hitting yourself over the head with the device. And I think this is where particularly uh, the work around kindness and compassion. Ajahn Brahm, uh, Theravadan monk, really talks about kindfulness. Like, what's it like to look at your experience, everything, good, bad, and indifferent, with a sense of, huh, all right, so this is going on. And that's where you start to get those, those, the, the practicing of resilience. Because even if it's a crap show, Right? If, if you actually train uh, in terms of, of, of being with it, then uh, uh, your capacity to bring that to bear in all sorts of crazy situations which speaks to resilience also, also is there. Do you have an answer for the really nice young woman in the back who, who talked about the fact that she's having trouble maintaining a consistent practice? I feel like we talked about a few things, which is give yourself a break. If you fall off the wagon, you don't have to tell yourself this story that you're a failed meditator. Nothing has been lost. It is okay to start again just the way we do when we're actually practicing. Get distracted, start again. Stop meditating, start again. We also talked about the, how it can be beneficial to have accountability structures in a community uh, or with friends. And also how ongoing inspiration, just looking at a good book once in a while, listening to a podcast or whatever, mm -hmm. can uh, keep, you, keep you connected to what the practice is all about. Because just sitting and feeling your breath coming in and going out can start to feel a little stupid and pointless after a while. And just being reminded at what this is for is useful. But do you think there's more to that list that we should have kept, uh, added? Yeah, I'll add two things. One is I'll shamelessly steal from John Kabat-Zinn. Um, uh, something he said in a book that really resonated with me, and this goes back to the idea of, of meditation being a transactional thing. I think all of us come to practice with something that's not working in our lives, and then we, we hear that mindfulness and meditation may be, um, uh, may be useful. But what, um, what John said was, if you can, like, why is mindfulness part of who you are? Right? Not something you want, but who you are. And for me, uh, the beginning of my practice was um, disturbing. Uh, I really knew, I, I became aware that I, uh, my inner voice was really self-critical. Like, it, what my inner voice says to me, if you guys said it to me, I would totally punch you in the face. <laughs> right? Um, and, and so... Um, my inner voice would punch you in the face back. Yeah, we get a, 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 uh, an inner voice, and so... Um, you were you know, talking about stealing from John Kabat-Zinn. Yeah, and when, I, and when I thought about this, for me, I would rather know the truth, right? Even though it's an unpleasant thing to realize that I have a very strong uh, critical voice, I would rather know than not know. And for me, every time things get uncomfortable or I get bored, I'd say, uh, I'd rather know. And that really gets me over a whole bunch of humps, and it, it takes away, it's, I feel like that's an intrinsic part of who I am, the sense of curiosity, of wanting to figure it out. And I find that's a really stable base. The other thing for me has been community. And I think in particular, faith communities are really good at this. This idea of knowing that you can go to a place where you're wanted. Um, and in addition to the secular practice, I also practice with a, a group uh, that's in San Francisco and LA called Against the Stream. And, um, it's good to have your people. It's good to have a community. Uh, it's good to have folks who will miss you, folks who will reach out to you. And I think that's a little different than just having accountability buddies. Uh, and so one of the things I'm really interested in is that given that traditional uh, wisdom and faith communities really have this, it's a real question of what's the, you know, what's the, what's, what's the, the secular 
uh, answer to this. And I think this is one of the things um, that's evolving, and it gives me great hope. Like the parent thing, uh, there's some meditation retreats where mom can go home at night or dad can go home at night, where they're explicitly designed for people with small children so that the structures, the beautiful, amazing life structures um, that we've inherited from these wisdom traditions, what if we make them so that people with kids can do them? It's a very, I'm very hopeful. So I'd say the community and then this idea of, you know, for everybody here, why is this part of who you are? I can't answer for you, but it's a great question to ask. What, what about you? We, we talked earlier about uh, when we talked on the phone and we're setting this event up. You talked a little bit about the, some of the data you've gathered internally at Google. Can you, uh, can you share some of that with us? Yeah. So for those of you that are seeking to bring this to organizations, um, part of the ways that organizations make decisions is based on benefit. Um, and when we go out and we, and, and, um, to find out what's important to the organization and then how can, I, how can you articulate the impact of a population that has it. And I've, uh, we did some research with the caveat that this is uh, self-reported. Um, some of the things that we care about are overall well-being and we uh, surveying people who have done our Search Inside Yourself and our GPAWS programs, 12 months later, uh, there was a 13% increase in overall well-being, an 11% increase in the ability to detach from work when you want to. Uh, we've done some un other internal research that really shows the importance of, of segmenting work from non-work. 11% um, increase in self-awareness, 19% increase in the ability to manage work-related stress, 19% uh, decrease in impatience with oneself and others. So who here would like to see that at your place of work? <laughs> who here would like to see this in your household? <laughs> And then a 23% decrease in emotional reactivity, right? So Google is the nerd factory. Um, for us, the correct way to communicate the benefit back is with uh, statistically valid science. Um, and these are the things that we care about. And so this then really informs some of the decision-making that happens. How did you get into meditation personally? Uh, unwillingly. <laughs> so if you had come to me and said, hey, Bill, I, I think you should really check out uh, mindfulness and meditation, I would have been like, screw off, you hippie. Um, as an engineer, as a scientist, as an atheist, I just assumed this, uh, this wasn't for me. And one of the things that's amazing about working at Google, and I'll have been there 12 years this summer, uh, is doing the impossible over and over again. You know, I really feel like that 20 years from now, I'll look back at this point in my career, and it'll be like being at NASA in the mid-1960s. Um, and the methods I had, so uh, if, if, if this is what's possible and here's where we set our goals, we have a tendency to meet this gap with the tool set evolution gave us for dealing with bear attacks. And for me, like, I was really feeling that. My methods of dealing with stress were along the ancient wisdom traditions of bourbon and cheeseburgers. <laughs> and it, 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 it wasn't working. And, and on top of that, when you throw in the... Um, the illness and death of a parent. On top of that, um, I just thought what I'm doing isn't working. And I went to a lecture, we have all these great lectures, and I went to a lecture on the neuroscience of emotion. And first of all, just the idea that my internal experience was anything other than witchcraft and randomness to be ignored and suppressed. Um, and they talked about that, that our internal lives, our emotions are actually really rational when you look at them from the point of, uh, uh, as humans, uh, emotion is the foundation of how we communicate with each other. So it's absolutely necessary. And they said that neuroplasticity exists, that you can change the structure and function of your brain by thinking repeatedly different ways, and that meditation was a way to do this, and that you basically you strengthen prefrontal cortex, the newer parts of the brain, such that when we meet challenge with the freak out, fight or flight, that you have the ability to actually quiesce that on demand. So I thought, okay, I'm going to give this a shot, and it was uh, absolutely life-changing. I have a question, actually. I'm just curious. You must get asked this all the time. Google is, in some ways, part of the problem. I don't mean, you know, I just in the sense that it's part of this massive infrastructure of technology and, and keeping our eyes on the, glued on these screens and more and more functionality with Google as it expands. There must be initiatives within Google about thinking, well, actually, this is an interesting thing. We have a, we have a, a unique opportunity to be responsible around this. Like, how, is, how, how might Google solve the fractured attention problem? And is it doing anything along those lines? Yeah, as a matter of fact, right before I started, um, 
on my phone, um, there's some settings, and I have my phone set up for who's on my priority list, and then um, during what times do I want to be disturbed. Um, and so, for instance, since I'm, I want my full attention to be on here, I said no one, no one can reach me, not alarms, not anything. Um, every night, my priority work list, which is people who can fire me, um, <laughs> they can send me texts um, until, uh, until 10 p.m. And I actually don't have work email show up on my phone at all. I have to go and look at it. So I think when I think about this, there's this question of how do we have a wise relationship with our tools? And I think part of our struggles with it is it's still, it's still early days. Um, and I do think that there's a responsibility that we're getting started on to provide the support structure so people have a, um, have a wise relationship with their tools. But I think in particular, um, I saw this picture, is, and, and uh, it was from, I think, like the early 1900s, and it's a New York subway car. Everyone has a newspaper out in front of them, every single person. And at the same time, I think it's important to acknowledge that having a supercomputer with all the world's information in your pocket is especially enticing, or where you can drop out of the moment and get whatever form of social validation uh, from Instagram or Snapchat that you, that you want. Um, that it's also, it's always something. You know, that, that desire, think about it, when you're in an elevator, isn't there most like a magnetic pull to your pocket? And, and going back to the idea about some, I think the difficulty practice of practice is actually one of the most rich parts. Why, and I'll, 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 I'll take ownership of this, why am I so, like what's going on that it seems unbearable to be with myself for 45 seconds in the elevator. <laughs> but it is, right? Not all, I mean, not, not that intensely, but that's, that's a really beautiful area of inquiry. It has to be like, what's, what's going on? Like the person who said, or people who keep the TV on. You're not a bad person for this, but part of mindfulness is actually saying like, huh, fascinating. What's up with that? I'd love to open it back up for questions from folks. Anything you want to ask? We have uh, a question up here in the third row and then another one in the second row. You're doing great. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm, uh, I, I don't do a ton of public speaking, so thank you for no, sharing that. I'm always you're sort of anxious uh, when I do these things. Hi, I'm Karen. Um, you guys have touched on it a couple times, but um, you just said something like, uh, deal with the flight or fright emotions on demand. But that seems like a, a level up from where I'm at. Mm -hmm. So every once in a while, I accidentally notice that I dealt with something uh, like my computer crashed and I lost everything and I didn't lose my mind. Mm. But then I went on Facebook and someone trolled me and I lost my mind. <laughs> so um, how, how can you pull that on-demand switch? Practice. Um, yeah, um, practice. So to do it in easy circumstances increases your ability to do it when it's much harder. And then the other thing is like you don't need to be perfect. You did it, you did it once. So an example is uh, after a few years of practice, uh, my father dying was one of the biggest experiences of my life. Uh, and I had this idea, I was in, I was in the ICU and um, um, uh, Ajahn Sumedho has this phrase like, right now it's like this. And I found that for the most part, certainly not all the time, I could say these, this is the smell of the ICU. These are the sounds. This is the emotion of realizing you're about to, uh, uh, to lose a parent. And because I had practiced with like my butt hurts or all of the little micro annoyances over and over, I, I really found that I had this surprising reserve to turn towards that which was most difficult, and my MO in those situations would be to do some sort of self-harming or lashing out at the people around me when having that amount of um, uh, emotional distress. But I found that working on the small stuff, and it sort of surprised me, um, I really had this ability to be with things uh, in, a, in a compassionate way. It, was, it sucked, it was the worst thing in my life, but it didn't shut me down. As a matter of fact, um, instead of my heart breaking into pieces, it broke open, like everything about my dad, uh, all the love, all the mistakes, uh, it was all there even at the moment of, of losing him. 
Um, and so, isn't it crazy that that's connected to staying with your breath when you want to check your phone? But there's, there's that relationship, there's that, there's that training between the two. We should have brought you on our tour. <laughs> <laughs> totally, I was There's a that. gentleman in the second row here. There you go, Mac. Hey, guys. This is a sort of general question for any one of you. So my main concern is uh, I've been using the meditation app, 10% Happier. It's groundbreaking. Thank you, Dan. And um, <laughs> if anyone hasn't Come seen by and collect your 20 on the way out. <laughs> yeah. uh, my, but the whole, my main concern is how do I... Uh, what's the difference between using the app or, or it's a, sort of a solo job as opposed to other forms of meditation like transmental meditation, Buddhist meditation, or going to retreats where you're kind of in a group process and you, have, you can ask questions or you can um, reflect on how you feel or how it's changing you. Would we gain the same results within doing it on our own and kind of just like one outlet, you know, just... Yeah, that's a great question and I'm going to let Bill like, dive in because this is I don't want to cut too much into your time, but I'll give you the short answer, which it's about a mix. There are lots of ways to practice. Uh, you can't be on retreat all the time. You can't be in a room with a great teacher all the time, although you can apparently be in a bus for 11 days with a great teacher. Um, the, you know, when you're at home and you're living your regular life, it's great to have uh, good books to, to, from which you can um, draw practice advice and instructions, or an app, or a free video on YouTube. Um, and then I think it's awesome to supplement that with a community, uh, with a relationship with a teacher if you have access to one, and retreats if you're up for it. Um, but there are lots of ways to get access to the stuff, and I don't think you need to just focus on one to the exclusion of others if you've got the time. But you want to dive in on that? Yeah, I'll give a, a bit of a contradictory answer. Um, I think there's a value of joining a group that's doing this together, right? You get the structure, you get the accountability, you get the community. And there's a little bit of mix and match. I would caution against getting too crazy with the mix and match. Um, uh, and so for me, you know, I practice outside of work. I practice in the, uh, with the Against the Stream, Theravadan Buddhism, um, getting ready to do a month-long retreat in a, in a, in a few weeks. Um, and that's the part that really does it for me. And I view my day-to-day -day practice almost as a maintenance um, and all sorts of different kinds of practices. Um, and for those, I think the apps are fantastic. I spend time on public transit. Um, you know, any opportunities. Um, yeah. How long is your beard going to be after a month? So, let me tell a completely tangential you're, you're story. You're going to be like drafted into ZZ Top. Talking, after that. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, I grew this on retreat, which makes it an official wisdom beard. Um, now, I'll, 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 I'll tell you the story involving a friend of mine that's ultra orthodox who just got completely annoyed at my beard growth. I'll tell that story. Later. Okay, that's an over-beers <laughs> story. Uh, one more question. Uh, Mac, you want to um, find somebody with a hand up? All right. Hello. Uh, I have quite a bit of physical pain in my body when I'm sitting down and it's like my body is screaming at me. And then I just get really angry. And I, I don't meditate often because I get pissed a lot when I'm meditating. I'm like, this does not make me feel good at all. I'm just feeling a lot angrier now. I don't know how to get beyond that. Uh, could you meditate lying down? I could. Yeah, I mean, I fall asleep. You fall asleep. Yeah. Is there a way you can position yourself where the pain isn't so overwhelming? Well, I feel like I've tried many times. I, mean, I work here, so I have access to, you know, I go to classes and I, I try many different things. Um, even, you know, when I go to Kundalini Yoga and we're doing all these things, I just get angry. Yeah. Um, so there's the pain and then there's the anger. I don't know if they're connected, but they're both, like, coming up very loudly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so you can work with both of them. I mean, um, you know, you want to be paying attention to what your body's actually telling you. I mean, it might be giving you legitimate pain signals. But there's also lots of just sort of more low-level discomfort that happens in practice that can be very intense. And there are ways of working directly with it, where you uh, really lean into it, you uh, really feel its edges, its center. Our, our teacher Shinzen is a real expert at actually at teaching people on managing pain. He wrote a book called Breakthrough Pain. So there are techniques for that. But you're also getting a secondary reaction. Uh, I may not even, maybe, be, or you look at it as a more fundamental one, which is that the whole, uh, the anger piece, which is just sort of, uh, there's a whole cause and effect thing that's going on there. So you can do a practice where you're really trying to notice 
working with that, noticing the moment it comes up, what exactly is triggering it. I mean, the uh, God, I have been through so, uh, such a roller coaster over the years in meditation with different emotions coming up for different reasons. And as you start to go into the practice, they just like, they, f- you know, fr- they kind of fission out and you start to see where they, they lead and that, that these things triggering this and this thing's triggering here. And you can start to trace out that whole root system. Um, and, and I'm not saying it's going to be super easy, but there's a lot, go- anything that has that strong of a reaction, there's probably a lot going on in there. Um, and you may have other thoughts too, but there's also other modalities to work, like within other kind of body work modalities that would, might be really insightful about exploring that. Did you want to? Yeah, I'd agree with everything, and I'd actually amplify and extend the part of turning towards um, the anger. Um, when, when I'm practicing, you know, you, you have little stories and you make lines for the other person that you're arguing with and you always make them the bad guy. <laughs> and that really generates anger for me. So anger is a, is, is a big part of my experience. I think it's crucial to not hold the idea that your practice is good or sufficient or working if you're blissed out, calm, you know, like the Time Magazine, you know, if you're, if you're not a white upper middle class woman in yoga clothes, like you're still meditating. It's not, it's not that exalted thing. And not only that, but getting kind curiosity about your anger, that's one of the, that's been an amazing journey for me. But the first part was to actually turn towards it. Of like, what is anger? Like when you feel anger, where do you feel it in your body? It's okay if you don't know that yet, but that's a great way in of actually getting curious. Like for me, when I'm angry, I know it's heat here, tightness here, pressure here. And me learning the tell of my anger, just even just on that basic level, huge. Because when I feel these sensations, I go, oh, I'm angry. Perhaps I should not send this email. Like for, it sounds weird, but just even knowing and then get, so this is, and and getting curious about the details of your anger. And for me, it's all tied up into not wanting to feel vulnerable in some way. And I overwrite it with anger. Um, So your meditation is actually, it's a lot of times these hindrances are fantastic information. Um, But but if we have the idea that we want to be blissed out and happy, then we actually then again turn this beautiful opportunity for, uh, for growth into another venue for self-judgment. Bill Duane, you're amazing. Thank you. Stay right here. Um, thank you. Um, I'd like to bring on our last guest of the evening. We've got a ringer. Um, his name is Moby. And um, I've known Moby for a little while, but I actually did not know that he was a meditator. Um, and... In fact, is a meditation teacher as well. He's, I think he referred to himself as a secret meditation teacher. Um, you may uh, know Moby from his massive uh, hit records, and he also wrote a book last year that I've been listening to, which is really fascinating. It's called Porcelain. Come on up here, Moby. I think I might need this one. Unless does one work? Hello? Hello? There we go. Hello. We found the one that one works. Doesn't work. Now I feel like a big idiot because I went and bought water. <laughs> and there's a whole little secret oh, yeah. cache of free water there. Yeah. <laughs> the voice in Moby's head, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, so what do you want to talk about? Um, how long have you been meditating? Why and when and where did that happen? This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, 
from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business and more. The I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15, 20% of it. But already, I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. To that question, I want to give a, a quick thanks to Oprah's Super Soul Conversations for sponsoring today's episode. Here's uh, my producer, Matt, with more on that. Oprah's Super Soul Conversations. It's a new podcast series available now from Oprah Winfrey herself. It features her interviews from the Emmy Award-winning show Super Soul Sunday on the OWN Network. It's got everything. Thought-provoking leaders, spiritual luminaries, health and wellness experts, best-selling authors, you name it. And you can listen to some of the most universal, powerful life lessons, sparks of brilliance, the aha moments that are Oprah gold. It features plenty of interviews that's going to help you to illuminate your path to your very best self. So subscribe now to Oprah's Super Soul Conversations, now on Apple Podcasts. Dan? Thank you, Matt. Uh, now back to my conversation with Moby. I think the first time I meditated, I was probably six or seven years old because I was raised by hippies. And my mom was a spiritual dilettante where like, she would smoke a lot of pot, pray to Jesus, throw the I Ching, do tarot cards, read Krishnamurti... And it all kind of made sense to me. So I think at one point she tried to teach me how to meditate, which involved like sitting like this and saying the word om. So maybe when I was six or seven. And then over the years, I've tried everything. Uh, I mean, I tried Zen. I tried Theravada Buddhism. Um, I, I did TM for a while, largely because David Lynch taught it to me. And You're I, a big David Lynch fan. Big David yeah. Lynch fan. And I sort of thought like, oh, this is an opportunity to spend time with David Lynch. So why not do TM? Um, and after decades and decades and decades of being a dilettante meditator, I can't say I'm good at it. Because also, I never want to be good at it. Because the moment I think I'm good at like, there's certain, I'm a good guitar player because I've practiced it. And I like being good at it. But both meditation the goal shouldn't be to good, be good at it because then I become smug. And I'm already smug. <laughs> you know, like, I already, like, I'm the person, you know, in, like, if I'm at against the stream, like, I look at the person who, like, looks too happy, and I'm like, they're, they're either faking it or they're a sociopath. <laughs> you know, like, so I, I judge everybody. Are you, are you judging me right now? No, you were really funny. You're oh, great. Oh, thanks, man. Appreciate yeah. that. I think that I like also, your judgment. We, the majority of time that you and I spent together, for me, that was pre-sobriety. Yeah, I don't remember that. Yeah. <laughs> so hey, I we have a question from the audience before Moby. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Go ahead. So, um, yeah. What else should we talk about? No, but you, you were saying, but the, when we met each other was pre-sobriety. You were that was pre-your meditation, Jack. No, I was. Um, an oddball alcoholic where one of the ways I justified my alcoholism to me is I thought that life was like a sand painting. That's supposed to be funny. At least to me that's funny. That if, Okay, to put it in context, that's me doing bags of drugs that I found in public toilets and drinking bottles of vodka and saying to myself, I don't have a problem. I'm just embracing immaterialism. You know, sobriety would be trying to exert control on an inherently chaotic, unstructured system. The truth is, I just loved alcohol and drugs. So I would drink and do drugs and then eat organic food and meditate. The road to nirvana. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I've been listening to your book, uh, the audio version of your book, Porcelain, available at fine bookstores everywhere. And um, your early life was, I mean, there's some pretty s tough stuff there. Um, and I just wonder, has meditation been useful in s s helping you deal with any residual pain from that? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, that's one thing, because I've been here listening to all the wonderful, wise things you guys have been saying, and the questions from the audience, and the one thing, like, if I have some presumptuous advice for anyone, it's don't use meditation as an opportunity to be critical of yourself, because no one is doing it better than you are. Like, the Dalai Lama, when he meditates, his experience is the exact same as yours. Um, I say that because I've hung out with the Dalai Lama. He's okay. He's kind of boring, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> talks a lot. So, um, but I see so many, and I did this for years, and I still do it, where it's like, I'm convinced I'm not doing it right, and I'm not doing it enough. And like, if only I did the right meditation practice that was invented 5,000 years ago, 8,000 miles away by brown monks, then I'll finally find enlightenment. And do you know what enlightenment is? Enlightenment is the awareness that no one has ever transcended the human condition. Enlightenment, I believe, is right you where you are right now. It's just having a different relationship to it that's based on like kindness and acceptance. At least that's kind of my idea. Like, I don't think there's a mystical transcendence. Maybe there is, but like when I see images of a Buddha laughing, all I think is like, he's laughing because he's still human. He's like, yeah, if you show me porn, guess what, I get an erection. I'm the Buddha, so what, you know? So, so... As it was said in the sutta. Right, I say this slamming the Dalai Lama and then talking about the Buddha uh, with priapism were two things I didn't see coming tonight. <laughs> but I love it. Um, so, uh, <laughs> One of the we were talking a little bit about the fear that people that meditation might make you mm, toothless in a professional environment, la lack an edge. Maybe as a, a as an artist, it might you know if you get too happy, you won't be as creative. Uh, do you hmm. worry about that? I mean, it's definitely it's definitely changed my relationship towards ambition. Um, you guys have taught you've, you've touched on this this idea that we're always moving towards something, but I think meditation, any spiritual practice should also be informed by like evidence and empiricism. Um, like we look at the, and we never do this, we don't ever look at the people who've accomplished what we want to accomplish, because usually they're miserable. You know, like the people who've had the most material success, like I've, I grew up with these people, they're so unhappy. We know that, we've been to the same parties, where it's like, I remember- I, Again, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> And so, like, our goals, like, we don't know what, like, we know what we want, but we assume that it's going to create some happiness that's not available to us right now. And that is, and I don't say this from a sort of, like, lofty spiritual perspective, I'm saying from an evidence-based perspective, that is nonsense, because there's just no evidence in the world to support the idea that when we get to where we want to go, we'll have a different perspective than we have now, or a different emotional state than we have now. And so, like, so in terms of ambition, yes. so for years, I thought, okay, if, and this is like the virus of New York or LA or wherever, I thought if I have the right career, the right girlfriend, the right other girlfriend, <laughs> the right other other girlfriend, the right combination of alcohol, drugs, fame, public notoriety, money, et cetera, et cetera, then I'll be happy. But then the universe gave all that to me, and I was miserable. And it took me years to finally accept, like, oh, I've been given everything I've ever wanted, and even more so, and I'm less happy than I was before I was given it. And I feel like the universe was sort of playing a joke on me. You know, because most people, you chase it, and you chase it, and you never get there, and you die longing. And I, the universe, and said with me, I mean, I'm not trying to anthropomorphize the universe, you know, maybe it's just random, but it felt like I was shown that when we get what we want, it doesn't change anything. What, the title of that great John Kabat-Zinn book, Wherever You Go, There You Are? 
Yeah. Or, the, or the wonderful Buddhist thing. I, you were talking to someone out there, but my, my, all the liquor and drugs, my mind is shot. Um, but the old, like, you know, before enlightenment, chop wood and carry water, and after enlightenment, chop wood and carry water. Like, nothing changes except your perspective. And I hope, there's another thing that I was noticing as we were talking is, and it's sort of a Western idea, and I'm Western, I was born in New York, but this idea that our experience is unique, you know, that your struggle is unique, that our frustrations are unique. Every experience we have is shared with everyone. And when you, one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had in meditating and out of meditating is not about me, it's about solidarity. You know, like the fear, the suffering, the anxiety, it's shared. Every single human being, except for Donald Trump, has that fear. <laughs> you know? I mean, maybe, clearly Steve Bannon as well, but like the non-reptilian humans, we all have that anxiety and fear, so. The views of Moby do not necessarily represent the views of ABC News, I just want to say that for the record. Uh, Jeff, you want, you want to weigh in here? I'd, I'd like to make a, uh, actually like to put out to the audience, uh, to make a pitch for uh, that there is such a thing as uh, maybe not arriving somewhere, but that there does there are profound changes that happen in our perspective that are uh, and that there is some mystery at the heart of this endeavor, and by endeavor, I mean more than just the practice, I mean this life and i 'm just curious other people out there who have been practitioners in all the ways that that means uh, in yoga, in meditation, in relationship, in art, in your commitments, whatever they are what what how would you articulate what deeper things or not, not deeper things that come into your experience? I mean, how, how would you describe it? And I'm particularly interested in meditators and anybody. Just what would you... And take a risk. Get Risk being, you know, spiritual in this, in this secular age. What does that look like? I'll try to... Uh talk in a coherent manner here, but there's a lot of things you said, Bomi. Um, like, I, I have this teacher who, over New Year's, said he thinks the word dharma, and he was told this by a teacher probably in the 70s named uh, Kalu Rinpoche, the word dharma won't even exist in like 100 years. Um, and so we talk about, you mentioned looking at... Um, looking to those who are successful and, and seeing that that doesn't really work. But I think part of it is we're just, we are looking in a direction that's about sort of greed and avarice. And, and um, there are examples of people that don't live that way. And maybe that could be successful. Um, that we, it's for me, it's very hard to kind of like chase that. Um, because it's just not part of the Western way we think. And so, I don't know, maybe... And I guess the, the thing that got me into meditating was being in the military and being in um, Iraq and being so present in the moment and having that just be such an amazing experience. And then I had to seek that out. So, uh, I'm going in different directions here, but the... The thing I'd like to ask you about is if you ever pressed up against the envelope of, whoa, meditation is actually too real. Um. Oh, yeah. I mean, through meditation, through sobriety, through therapy, through prayer, through physical illness, like confronting who we are at the core of ourselves, like, I hope, I mean, that's for me, that's, I mean, there's also like, those moments when there is that sort of transcendent experience, when you feel like you have a glimpse beyond the curtain, whatever that might mean for everyone. So I'm, I'm, I fully accept that there are lots of places to get to. It might just not be linear, and we're not prevented from being there right now. You know, it's all right in front of us and in us and around us. Uh, but I've had subjectively lots of those experiences. I've never been in war, so I can't compare our experiences, but what's fascinating is 
the vulnerability of it, at least for myself, like the years and the decades that I've spent crafting a suit of acceptable cultural armor. You know, so when I deal with other people, when I deal with the media, and even sickeningly when I deal with myself, I have this idea of how I should be, how things should be. And what's the most wonderful, one of the most wonderful things in the practice is confronting yourself as you actually are and being able to see it in a compassionate, gentle way. Say like, oh, you suffer, you're vulnerable, you're lonely, you struggle, and you have joy and you have strength as well. And then recognizing that the way I just described my core self applies to everyone. More questions? Uh, we've got some folks in the front here. I was just going to want to offer a disclosure, and I appreciate the comments in the back with the rage and anger, because that was one of my first experiences coming back to breath, and then realizing that I was pushing myself to be perfect in meditation, and when I let go of that allowing, I had guttural eruptions of sound and rage for months in my meditation practice. And what it led to was a journey of learning to listen, trust, and allow. And I was introduced, not because I was present face to face, but because they called me in to a group of adult nonverbal autistic who are masters in the field of unity consciousness. And they are my teachers. And they have taught me a very sacred breath meditation to access a remote classroom that we can source solutions from a higher realm. So meditation's powerful, and I'm grateful for this dialogue and this discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Pass the mic. Well, uh, you mentioned uh, some things about changing your perspectives. And... Um, you also talked about how there's no goal, perhaps, to get to. And uh, you also touched on mindfulness and maybe here and there out the day, not necessarily having one you know, specific moment. I'm just speaking personally, but going through the day with uh, moments of mindfulness. And uh, you also mentioned a bunch of emotions, vulnerability, uh, kindness, and things like that. And uh, for me, one of the things was having a realization that the self that we sometimes think we have back here is kind of an illusion, or very much so an illusion. And uh, I used to think there was just one I back there, one me. And uh, there's actually many, many, <laughs> it feels like there's just many, many me's coming and going. So it felt good to acknowledge and um, be okay with the fact that you know, I didn't choose my parents. I didn't choose where I was born. I didn't choose to be one species primate on a planet, you know, going around one star. And uh, I think it's Richard Dawkins says, like, uh, everyone alive uh, won the genetic lottery. Was Richard Dawkins the host of Match Game PM? <laughs> <laughs> Just dating Perhaps. <laughs> so, um, really, there's so many questions I could ask, but the one I wanted to see if you guys could expound on is um, the sense of the self being, being an illusion that we all have and how that can be empowering. You want to take that one, Mo? I mean, I was a philosophy major in college, and the great thing about being a philosophy major is when you tell people you're a philosophy major, they immediately assume you're smarter than you are. <laughs> um, but I remember reading Bertrand Russell when I was like taking Philosophy 101, and he, in a pretty expert way, deconstructed the entire material world and the entire world of our perspective and perception. And at the age of 18, I was like, oh yeah, okay, so not a single thing I perceive is as it really is. And there's something about human consciousness and the subjective nature of it that we're disconnected from objective reality. Inherently so. Perhaps, who knows, maybe we're not, but most likely we are. When you think of like quantum states, you know, and are in the, we're comprised of it, but we have no knowledge of that. So our idea of self is wonderful and great, but completely chimerical. Like it's just, 
100% illusion. And this is one of the issues I sometimes take with some Eastern traditions and some meditation traditions. They'll say like, oh, you need to like crush your idea of the self. It's like, no, be gentle with yourself. Like, because that illusion of self, it, it's who we are as a species. And unless we, like we don't need to punish ourselves for living in this world of illusion, there needs to be kindness and gentleness because that illusion, it's shared as far as we can tell from every creature who's ever held, drawn a breath. So I sometimes think like self-punishment shouldn't necessarily be a part of a spiritual tradition. We don't necessarily need to just have like blanket acceptance, but have kindness and gentleness and non-dogma in our spiritual practices in our lives. And, and thank you. And realizing that uh, some of those emotions and behaviors that we have were evolved and did help us at some point, but now that monkey brain, like one of you mentioned the fight or flight, it's profound and we don't always have to, you know, do that nowadays. You know, it's funny, I, I was watching, um, as a sober middle-aged guy, I do watch a lot of documentaries on Netflix, <laughs> and I was watching some documentary about a watering hole in Africa, and there were these little monkeys running up to the watering hole, scooping filthy, disgusting water into their mouths and running away before they were eaten by crocodiles, hippos, lions, or something else. And I was like, no wonder we're so scared, because that was us pretty recently, <laughs> you know. Thank you, Moby. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. I also want to thank you, Bill Duane. Thanks for having me. And uh, before we go, it's been a pleasure traveling with you for 11 days. You're the man. You're amazing. Um, thank you, everybody, for coming tonight. Really appreciate it. Have a great night. Thank you. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.